this is the <laughs> worst. Sorry, I'm waiting because for you I stopped it. I'll be safe. I wish you didn't recording it. Stop recording it. Sarah, I, I can only apologize. This has never happened to me before. I've be like, never, oh, yeah. I have never, ever done that before. I'm absolutely bored. At least she knows it's known. At least she knows it's known. It's better than 20 minutes time. I really don't want it. Let's do it again. Again, again. Okay. Hello, my name is Rob Cutforth and this is The End of All Things, the podcast that follows me in my own quest to get a novel published with interviews and advice from some of the Northwest's leading writers. It's also the podcast where I talk to the guest for five minutes before realizing I haven't hit record. Yeah, that was embarrassing. How bush league am I? I'm coming to you today, as usual, from sunny Ermston in South Manchester. South Mank, South South Mank. No, no, it doesn't work. I say sunny because it's August, which means it should be sunny, but because it's Manchester, it's absolutely pissing it down. August in this country is the worst. There are months with worse weather than August, but, you know, you expect it to be shit in December. Middle of the summer, August is just disappointing. It just doesn't live up to the hype. August is the San Francisco of weather. That makes no sense. Today I talked to Sarah Butler, who is a novelist, a poet, short story writer, uh, novella writer. She's a lecturer, I think. Have I just made that up? I think she is. A she's works with young people. Uh, she was a writer in residence for the London Underground. We talk about that. Yeah, I, I didn't understand it either until she spoke about it, and now I do. And you will too soon. I guess some people would call her a polymath, but I prefer omni-talent. She's written two novels, the first one being Ten Things I've Learned About Love. Well, see, it's, it's learnt about love, but I can't bring myself to say that. That's such a British thing, learnt. Uh, should be learned, shouldn't it? Anyway, whatever. It's Britain. They can do what they want with the language, I guess. Uh, and her most recent book, Before the Fire, which is the one that I read and that we talk about quite a bit in this podcast. Um, Before the Fire has been out for a while, and it is about the Manchester riots from a few years ago. Except, of course, it's not about the riots at all. It's really about young people and, I guess, the, the raw deal they are getting and their sometimes violent response to it. She talks about the book in, in a lot more intelligent way than I just did. Uh, I suppose it's ironic that in a podcast where we talk about a book that came about as a result of how young people are unfairly perceived by the media, that a group of millennials decide to sit two tables down from us and have a good old and quite loud, in parts, chat. Um, I suppose as an Easter egg, you could give the podcast a listen a second time to hear what they're actually talking about. Lord, don't do that. Oh my God, like a... Did you hear about Jenny? It's awful. If the background chat is annoying you, stick with it because about halfway through, it gets better. They settle down and uh, and then a little bit, I guess about two thirds of the way, they leave completely. And that just coincides really with the, our conversation 
getting to the good stuff, really, i.e. when Sarah actually talks about what she does for money, which is my favorite conversation. Having said that, don't fast forward to that bit because the whole chat is really good. It's one of my favorites, actually, despite the mad talking in the background. It's not as bad as I make it out to be. I'm just an audiophile and that sort of thing annoys me. The public, you know, people talking in public. Like, it's just, who do they think they are? The conversation is, as I mentioned, is very much about how a writer makes money. In other words, the hustle. She, I mean, we do talk a lot about the art of writing, as, as always. But she actually talks figures on the record about how much she got for her books and how she got an agent and the things she's done in, I guess, the 10 years leading up to the publication of her first novel and how basically how a writer can get by. So there's loads of good stuff in there. Really interesting. Sarah is very good at finding ways of making money as a writer. And lucky for you, she is very happy to share them. Uh, Spoiler alert, networking. She also talks about writing about place, and which is something that she's very interested in. Uh, Most of her novels, I think, start with a place rather than a person. And the, the one that we talk about is about Manchester, which is quite nice because that's where I live. Helping young people is quite a big part of what Sarah does and is something that she's quite passionate about. And we talk a bit about higher education and how helpful, you know, free tuition would have been. So there's a bit of politics in this as well. She has like 100 degrees and is currently doing a PhD for which she's getting paid as well. So she knows what she's doing. Oh, yeah, that reminds me. Publishing update. So you're probably wondering why there's been such a long silence since the last podcast episode. Well, publicly, I've said, well, (laughs) I say publicly, like anyone's reading my Twitter account. I've said that it's been because I've been busy writing, but really it's mostly been because I've been sulking, having finally received my mark for my master's dissertation, i.e. my novel. I'm not going to tell you what my mark was, but let's just say I had a number in mind, as well as a second number that acted as a worst-case scenario, and the mark was well below both of them. So basically, I've paid, what, like close to 10 grand to find out I am excellent at writing essays, and my novel writing needs work, which are precisely the two things I knew about my writing before I went on the master's program. So either I'm not receptive to learning new things or the learning was lacking i'll let you decide which one that is i was wondering if i should really talk about this because it's personal stuff and it just comes across as moaning but i don't know i started this publishing update thing and (laughs) this is an update uh would i do the masters again now knowing what i know i don't know I'd be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed in the feedback for my novel. I think if you dedicate, you know, three years and a fuck ton of money to something, you should get more than six short paragraphs of, you know, quite general feedback. I don't know if you've done an MA in creative writing, but most times, well, the way it used to be before this new Masters in Fine Arts has come about, which, you know, you pay more and you get less, but 
don't worry, I, I'll let you figure that bit out. Um, the masters I'm taking, you actually get to submit a full novel and you get a, a feedback on that. You hand in two copies and maybe maybe this is naive, I don't know, but I expected to get one of them back just covered in red ink. I got way more feedback from Jen Ashworth's writing analysis thingy for 300 bucks. By the way, don't bother Googling Jen Ashworth's writing thing because I don't think she offers that service anymore, but I'm sure there are other places that do it that are a hell of a lot cheaper than an, a master's degree uh, and you get more feedback. So I suppose the podcast came as a result, came up, came out as a result of doing the master's. So there is that. But I think if you're contemplating doing a master's in creative writing and the money is quite a big deal to you, as it is me, I would say unless your number one goal is the piece of paper, you really needed to give to give it some careful thought. Also, if you're expecting your tutors to show up to the graduation, just put that thought out of your head as well. Bit bitter, bit cynical. Yeah, well, you know, you've listened to this podcast, you know what I'm like. In the spirit of balance, you will soon hear that Sarah Butler would massively disagree. She's, you know, she's a big, she loves post-secondary education. I'm new to it. I, I don't have an original degree, so I, I was surprised that, I don't know, maybe I just expected to come out of it. Well, I, I certainly expected to come out of it at least a little bit better writer. God, I can't even speak. How the fuck can I expect to write? But anyway, Sarah has, I don't know, loads of degrees. And in this podcast, she'll, she goes into why education is a good thing, whereas I'm still kind of not sure. <laughs> anyway, so... The present situation, the reason for this publishing update, God, I don't know how many more of these I'm going to do. I've got loads of more podcasts coming that have these updates in them. And this, I don't know how long, how, what I'm going to say in those because guess what? The book needs work. Anyway, so present situation is trying to fix the novel using the tiny bit of feedback I received. How the fuck I'm going to do that? God knows. On the plus side, however... Uh, bringing it back, people, don't worry. On the plus side, Beth Underdown, uh, former podcast guest, lovely human, excellent writer, has joined my writing group. So who knows? Maybe there is hope. Publishing update. Happy news, happy news. Come on, Rob. Cheery thoughts. Get them back, Rob. Um, speaking of Jen Ashworth, she's coming back on the podcast to talk about her new collection of short stories with Richard Hurst. I've mentioned this before. She teaches creative writing in Lancaster. So I will make sure to grill her about masters in creative writing. Grill is a strong word. Lightly toast. I will lightly toast her. That sounds gross. I will just ask her questions about creative writing. I feel like I've done that joke on the podcast before. Um, more good news. I've secured interviews with two quite big writers one of whom has written possibly the funniest book I've ever read. And I know I'm, you know, I've run a podcast, so I'm supposed to say things like that to get people to listen, but it genuinely is. I'm reading it right now and it's hilarious. Um, the other guest is a favorite to win this year's Booker Prize. So I'll let you see if you can guess who that is. You do want to know, don't you? You just have to listen to the rest of this podcast to find out. Ha ha. 
Those guests are in addition to the other guests I've already mentioned on the previous podcast, Helen McClory and Adele Stripe, and Kate Feld's coming on to do our usual, our yearly preview chat of the Manchester Literature Festival, aka the greatest literature festival in all the land. There are loads of great writers coming this year. I was going to talk about that now, but why would I do that when we're going to be on the next podcast talking about it with a person who actually works for the Manchester Literature Festival? Why am I telling you this shit now? That is the that is end of the podcast tackle. Tackle. I used that word in my novel, and the writing group members who aren't from Manchester didn't get it. I don't know how or where I picked that up, but I have to stop saying it. Maybe that's why my book sucks. Book doesn't suck, Rob. Uni said good things too, remember? Loads of good things. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Um... That's a joke from Saturday Night Live that none of you British people will get. Long story short, writing is fucking hard, man. Anyway, here is the positive yin to my negative yan, the ultra-lovely Sarah Butler. Listen. over the years in community projects and arts projects and I think I just got annoyed by this kind of idea of like people writing off a section of society people writing off young people who you know had difficult lives and were dealing with really difficult things and kind of you know making out they were feral and immoral and what have you so I can't quite remember when I decided it was going to be a novel but I I, I kind of had this idea that I wanted to write a story about a person who ended up in the riots and I think there's an interesting thing when that happened and I guess when any big thing happens um, that people try and come up with a narrative about why it happened so it's kind of oh and, and I think with the riots it was this it was this kind of split between a kind of oh it's you know broken Britain and feral young people um, as opposed to oh it's austerity and that kind of argument and I suppose I was thinking about how you know there are as many stories in that event as there were people who took part in it so yeah so that's why I wrote it it was a kind of as a reaction I guess to to the sort of media surrounding what happened um and in terms of why Manchester in a funny way it was kind of I suppose or linked to my own life in that I'd just written a novel about London which is very much a London novel um and I felt that I didn't really want to um write another novel based in that city yet mm-hmm. um, I was moving back to Manchester so there was a sort of logic in terms of there I'm from Manchester um, and I suppose I was quite interested in that the way that 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 those riots started off with this sort of political motivation and actually by the time they spread nobody really knew what was going on mm. <laughs> why it was happening so I suppose and that was the bit I was interested in was just creating a, nar- a narrative in that kind of space of slight, of kind of meaninglessness in right. a way. So yeah. it wasn't a, a kind of way to um, to justify the riots at all? No, not at all. It was more just, a, I guess, just being interested in them as, an, mm. as a phenomenon. And I think it's very interesting that actually they're now not really talked about at all. I mean, it was interesting recently with the stuff around Grenfell Tower and the kind of protests and stuff afterwards. It's, it's, there's a sort of a similar-ish feeling as there was back in 2011. I mean with different different kind of sparks I guess but um yes yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't kind of 
interested in saying, oh, this is a good thing or a bad thing or it happened for this reason. I was just more interested in it as a kind of context. And I suppose because I was thinking about young people and having met quite a lot of young people who just felt quite kind of lost and stuck and didn't have this sense of having opportunities or having choices. And I think I was really lucky as a young person, partly, I guess, because when I was a young person, but also in terms of my background and my education and what have you, that I, when I was 18, I thought I could do anything, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I can, you know, the world's there for the taking. And having met a lot of young people who, for that, who for that, that isn't true for them. And also they don't, you know, they don't feel it's true for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that was another thing that I really wanted to explore. And I sort of felt like the riots were a bit of an expression of this frustration and this kind of sense of you know what is there for me in this yeah. country do you think education is a link do you think safely put are you talking about university education yeah i guess so and also just kind of coming i suppose you know i came from a kind of my mum was a teacher my dad was a town planner i grew up with books um i grew up in a family that kind of really valued education Education worked for me, like I was lucky, school was, I got on with school, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas I think a lot of people don't, it doesn't yeah. work for them. Um, so I think it is, and I think it it gives you opportunities, I mean mm-hmm. it does. Really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it does make a big difference, but also that how, both the education you get, but also it's something to do with confidence, I think. I think this idea that actually you have the right to take from the education system and to ask and to yeah. make demands and I think you know a lot of young people don't necessarily feel that mm-hmm. um, they feel quite kind of disenfranchised I guess yeah so uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to ask this question but it, it sounds like so do you think something like um, so if education is that is that tied into that sort of thing you know what I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ask that question <laughs> okay because I, I, I was going to ask a political <laughs> question I'm not sure I want to go there okay Yes, I do. Okay, let's do it. I can edit it out later, can't I? <laughs> you can. So do you think something like free tuition fees is something that would... I think it would make a massive thing. difference. And I think, yeah. I, again, I'm super lucky because I went to university the year before tuition fees. The first lot of tuition fees happened. And I've been to university since, kind of to do master's degrees, and I've really noticed the difference in how people are approaching education. Mm-hmm. But also, I guess I just, when I think about... You know, I think I'm on my fourth degree at the moment. Um, I wouldn't, wow. I wouldn't have been able to do that, or if I had, I'd have had to make massive decisions about being prepared to be in debt and you know, mm-hmm. the, all the implications that have in terms of the choices you make afterwards. Yeah. And I just think it's becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger barrier. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking, really. I think, I think. it's what's happening is uh, you can see what's happening where I'm from is happening here now. Yeah, exactly. In that, I, I mean, that, that's the reason I didn't go to university. Well, the reason I dropped out of university is because I couldn't afford it, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, and I think, if I, had I gone into the arts or something, uh, you know, something that I was actually interested in, I would have probably gone further. But because kids have to spend so much money, the question isn't, what do I want to do when I'm there? The question is, what will get me a job yeah, when exactly. I get out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, when especially when you get politicians who are so blatantly say that engineering and maths are what, are what we value yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that you know that people don't yeah. go into the arts and I think that's what's going to happen here now yeah and I think and I think also when you're that age you don't necessarily because you don't know the world of work as well and mm-hmm. because you're told what you're told yeah you don't necessarily understand the skills that you're gaining so I remember mm-hmm. actually this is before university when I was about 15 I said to my dad I thought god I, ne- I don't know that I'm ever gonna have a job because I can't really do anything particularly and he said oh you can write and actually that's an incredible skill um, and I think 
that thing about writing, about critical thinking, um, about analysis, you know, all that stuff, which, okay, it's an English degree, and at the time I thought, oh, I like books, I'll read some books for three mm -hmm. years. But actually, you do have those skills, but then it's less of an obvious link to a job, yeah. I think. Um, and I think, but the thing is, because you grew up in a, in a household that is, that values education, obviously, it was your mum that was a teacher. Mum was a teacher. Um, there, it's more likely to be, you know, you should go and take something that you're good at, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than when you haven't, probably haven't got a lot of money, you, yeah. just, you look at what, what makes money. Yeah. You know, bankers make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to go into commerce yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, something that they hate and then they drop yeah, out yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. you're spending so much money to be there. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing that I feel really lucky is that I, yeah, I did a degree because I loved it and I was interested and that's actually the, you know, that's a really privileged position to be in to spend three years doing something because mm -hmm. you're interested in it yeah yeah it's interesting your book uh, you, you talk about the riots and and why you wrote about them but the riots don't play a huge part in no you're right at they all. don't no <laughs> and it's funny I think um, in a way they were the starting point and then you know in terms of the actual book they're the beginning and the end of the book but you're right they're not they're, they're the sort of background I suppose mm -hmm. and actually the things that I write about really are people and loss and relationships and kind of how we navigate places and cities and mm -hmm. ourselves and our lives um, so yeah I guess in a way it was, it's almost a yeah it's a context more than, yeah. a, more than a subject if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. One of the things I was worried about before I re read this because when I researched you and uh, you, you have a big um, interest in, in place, basically, yeah. and in writing about place. Yeah. I always get worried about that when I hear that, <laughs> especially when it comes to a novel, because I think, oh, good, the city's going to be a character in, the, in okay. the book. And that just wasn't the case in this at all. I don't think it's very... It's all about the main character, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think in a lot of ways, I didn't really see... I didn't, it's one of the few books where I, I didn't see any of it coming. Okay. I, I, even though it's called Before the Fire, and because you just expect, oh, it's going to be about the riots. Right. And, you know, I think that's what all the press was about. And stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was described like that, and so some people were a bit like, hang on, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah How's it doing? Um, I think all right, not yeah. amazingly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I tend to, I learned quite early, when I first got published, I learned that that whole thing around sort of obsessing about sales figures and stuff wasn't very good for my mental health. Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah. Well, your first it. book did very well, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it didn't sell incredibly well in, in Britain, but it did. It sold internationally. So I think mm. it's published in 14 or 15 languages, um, which was fabulous. And actually, before the fire's been published in... Holland and Germany and Italy and maybe somewhere else. And interestingly, in Holland and Italy, it's been published as a young adult novel. Um, and I was doing an interview for an Italian newspaper and they said, oh, why did you decide to write for teenagers? And I was saying, oh, I didn't really. So there's also that thing that I find quite frustrating, which is this idea, and I think sometimes it's, um, it's kind of categorised as young adult in bookshops or libraries or whatever. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that if you write a book about a teenager, people assume you've written it for teenagers. Whereas if you write a book about a five-year-old, they don't assume you've written it for a five-year-old. It's a very... And I think it's quite a dangerous thing because I think, actually, as adults, we need to listen to teenagers and we need to listen to that kind of... You know, that new, that new generation coming up and what's going on for them. I think it, you, you can't... You just look out 
look what's happening now. This yeah. is what happens when you don't listen to young people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or when you do listen to Yeah, them. you get someone that you, that I suppose old people don't want. <laughs> but I, I have to say, I'm well and truly on the side of young people. Yeah, me too. I have to say, <laughs> please save us young people. Um, okay, so you, you are, I wouldn't say obsessed, I suppose. I've done a bit of research about you. You have a consultancy that writes about place and communities. Yeah. <laughs> I never know whether to call it a consultancy because it's not really. Sorry. Um, yeah, I never quite know whether to call it a consultancy because it's not very I don't know that it is. That. It does sound a bit corporate. Mm. I mean, it's basically that I'm really interested in place yeah. and I'm really interested in writing. Um, and I started off working as a literature development officer in Leicester for three years and then I did an MA in creative writing and then I worked for a youth arts charity in Tower Hamlets in London. And then I went freelance and I was kind of thinking, oh, what is it that I really want to look at? And I got a little bit of funding from something called the National Association of Literature Development, which doesn't exist anymore. So there's a tiny grant and I decided to look at writing and regeneration, not really knowing what that meant, <laughs> what that was. And so through that, I started looking at public art, started, looking, started thinking about the relationship between place and writing. And it was just the thing that made me excited and that I wanted to read more about and think more about and do more work in that area. So... So I kind of set up this thing called Urban Words, which is it's kind of just me, really, but it's a sort of umbrella branding, if you like, around just to sort of give it an identity. As a kind of thing to, to both do projects, to advocate for that kind of work, to... Um, what kind of work? So the kind of work, so I suppose work, you know, get, find, the thing I found when I worked in literature development, I ended up doing an awful lot of work where I was getting writers to go to schools, to go to community centres, to go to libraries, which is fine. And Brilliant. Yeah, no, I didn't actually, but um, and I just thought oh, I, there was, I just felt that there were other opportunities, potentially other opportunities for writers to you know to give writers work and to create new writing, and so I started looking at well, you know, is there the scope for writers to work with architects, to work with planners, to work with um, developers, to work in that kind of context of urban change? Um, so that was the thing that I was kind of interested in and experimented with and have done. You know, some projects have been very much about that. So kind of, I did a public realm project in East London, which was part of a massive big redevelopment that was happening there. And it was working with the council and with some architects thinking about kind of routes from the town centre to the um, Thames. And so we did these kind of poetic way markers, if you like, that all came out of a process of oral history and collecting stories about the area and, and me kind of turning that into sort of very short poetic pieces. Um, so that kind of stuff, I suppose, of thinking about, um, I suppose, public art in terms of writing physically in a place, but sure. also, I guess, just the relationship. And I mean, it changes all the time and it depends what I'm doing. So what pieces come out of that then? So short stories? Well, the thing, because I don't Essays. like because I don't like making life very easy for myself. <laughs> um, I've also tended to do this thing where I'm really interested in if I'm working in a place, thinking about what kind of forms it might offer. So rather than going there and going right, I write prose, so therefore mm -hmm. I will write a um, short story all the time. I will go and go. Well, what is it? What could I write? What does this place kind of suggest? So the one, the project I just mentioned. There was a man who told us a story about he used to live down by the river and they used to go to the pub and um, all the lamps were out it was during the wall and his dad used to leave pieces of white paper, so a bit like Hansel and Gretel, um, so that when he came back and the moon would shine, I don't know if it worked, he <laughs> would follow these white paper, these pieces of white paper to get back because it was just pitch black. <laughs> and so we used that idea for the form of the writing, so the writing became these kind of little, almost kind of okay. notes through the landscape. Oh, right, okay. Um, so, and I did... 
which is maybe this is maybe kind of an augmented less. reality thing that could be kind of, but it's sort of thinking. So when I did, and I did, and I was writing residence on the Central Line for Art in the Underground, and that I did a piece where um, I'd, re- I'd noticed that um, all of the all of the stations had fax machines. They were all really paper based. I know it's weird. Um, I think now they probably have Wi-Fi, but yeah. at that point, um, it is underground. Yes, yeah, exactly. But I think they've sort of somehow sorted right. that out. Okay. Anyway, it was all a very fax machine, and mm. and um, and also I was thinking about connections and you know these stations connecting each other. So I did a project where I created a story that took the kind of hard to explain, but I took <laughs> the um, the shape of the central line. So it starts. There are two branches. They meet. It goes along from it. They part again, and there's a sort of funny loop. Um, so I had a. So I was like, okay, we'll have a story. We'll have two characters that start at these two ends. They'll meet okay. where the line meets. They'll part where the line parts. Um, and the process was that I would go to each station, work with the, whoever was working at that station to write a paragraph, print it out, fax it to the next station, I would travel to the next station, we would write the next paragraph. So it was that thing of saying, actually, this the form of what I'm doing is influenced directly by the place and sure. the structures and the sort of realities of okay. the place I'm working in, if that makes any sense It does a at bit. All. <laughs> so how, I still can't get my head around what the final product is. Again, so I think the thing is that it always changes because it depends on the place and it depends on the Sure, project. but for that place in particular, like the so, central line, so what, did you, what, what do people come up with? Is there like a book that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. there's a book and there's a, I did four different projects, four different things, but that one I've just described to you, I think it's a seven and a half thousand word story. I mean, it's completely bonkers. Yeah. Um, it, and it just became some kind of crazy... Everyone wanted a twist because we're 45 stations. So I went to 45... It took me five days. Yikes. And so I went and worked with staff at 45 stations. And at every station, they're like, oh, let's make a twist. And I was like, you can't have 45 twists in one story. Let's do some describing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, so it's not the greatest piece of literature ever. But mm. in terms of a project, there was a kind of posters all over the tube that had all of the text on it. And then we published a book and there's a website as well. Um, and then I also collected stories about the names of staff. I was very interested in nicknames. And also there's staff from all over the world. So kind of naming traditions from West Africa or Greece or whatever. What was the best so nickname? Oh, do you know what? It was so long ago, I really Oh, okay, right. But there were some really beautiful stories of people taking other people's names or why they called their children what they called. Yeah. There was, and there was one story about, it's this kind of ghost story in, of, of someone whose father died, but they saw them just as the baby was born. I can't quite remember the whole story, but um, yeah, just these beautiful insights, I guess, into people's kind of lives. Ah. And then I did another thing where I went out, and that was, was more straightforward, I guess, but I went out on the front of tubes with tube drivers largely because I just wanted to do Yeah, that. of course you do. Um, of course you do. Then, <laughs> What's the whole thing? Just an excuse to get into the, to the front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I wrote, a, a sh- so I went out with two different drivers and I wrote a short story for each of those drivers, mm-hmm. not about the journey, but inspired by our conversation and them. And, and right. then I sent it to them and they helped me edit it and kind of change it. So, right. Yeah. Were they, luckily, you didn't get in with the real boring driver. I think I got, I think they were selected for me. <laughs> <laughs> Characters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this book has also got quite a lot of good press. The I see like lots the fire? of well, yeah, yeah, before the fire. It's got loads of uh, quotes from uh, newspapers. The one I always the, this is a question I've never asked anyone before, but when there's a Daily Mail quote <laughs> on yes. the front of your book. Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, do you know, I just find it actually quite funny because, as I said earlier, the reason I wrote Before the Fire was <laughs> because I was so annoyed about how papers like the Daily Mail um, kind of responded to what happened. So it's kind of, there's a sort of slight beautiful irony in having them raving about the book. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting from what I've heard, and I'm not pretending to be an expert on 
the kind of intricacies of the literature world, but um, I think the Daily Mail uh, book review bit is seen as quite a it's seen as quite different from the Daily Mail politics. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So actually, it's quite respected, I think, in terms of its. I, I, I still so. don't understand how that. No, can I don't be. understand either. Yeah, because when I saw you, when I read that, because I read your book, <laughs> and then I, it was only just because I, I never look at the quotes. Yeah. I closed it, and the, the right on the front is yeah. Daily Mail. Like, there's one book <laughs> Daily Mail wouldn't Would say nice things about. Yeah. It'd be this one, like a working class kid. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. And interestingly, the Guardian didn't review it, so it's that kind of. How weird! I know. It's yeah. really strange. But. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so one of the, the questions that always comes up on this podcast, um, because I'm obsessed, is how a writer lives from day to day. Mm-hmm. Where does your cash come from? Uh, do you um, most? Uh, and to be honest, the answer to that question is usually I have a lecturer's job in MA in creative writing someplace. Okay, I don't have that. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> so, Tell me something new. So, uh, do you know what I'd rather you'd said? I'd okay. rather you say. I make so much money from my books <laughs> that I can just kick yeah. back in on my... my Caribbean island. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I know it's not true. Well, the thing is, it really fluctuates. So I spent ten years writing seriously before I got published. So I had okay. I wrote two novels that weren't published, had an agent, didn't have an agent, blah 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 blah. Um, so I spent ten years not getting paid at all for my writing, and during that time, I was working as a lit- as a literature youth worker in Tower Hamlets, and then I was freelancing and doing my own projects. And so I started off very much the project manager fundraiser um, person which I kind of enjoy and whatever but but I got but, it sounds and, like and a good job but like the fundraising bit yeah I always figure you know I'm a creative writer so yeah I quite there's a bit of me that quite likes it okay um, but so my whole drive was about finding work for writers about creating opportunities and then as I went on I started going oh I kind of I kind of want to do the writing bit of this and my I suppose because my confidence my confidence as a writer was developing and I just felt like well maybe actually I want to shift this balance so I kind of consciously shifted that balance and started taking residencies and doing kind of delivering work as a writer if you like so I suppose probably for about I don't know exactly but say maybe four years before I was published I was earning my living as a writer Mm -hmm. and that was all through writing residencies commissions a lot of stuff that I hustled for yeah how do you hustle okay how do you hustle I I, I know I don't (laughs) want to mean to interrupt you but how do you hustle for those jobs when you haven't got a novel that's been published in the background I think because if you've not got a name at the time I think because I wasn't really working in the literature sector, so I was working in... Non-fiction kind of... Essay. No, no, not even really that, just kind of working with local authorities, mm. working with, you know, architect practices, working with kind of various different partnerships that maybe weren't that bothered. I wasn't writing a novel, so it didn't sort of didn't necessarily feel that that mattered, and I had quite a strong... Po- I was building quite a strong portfolio mm-hmm. as a writer... And I think there's that, and it, I, I quite often do talks actually at, at, um, for MA students, and I feel really passionate about the idea that the, the sort of model of, you know, you write a novel, you get published, you get money, or not, um, <laughs> isn't, it isn't the only way, it isn't the only kind of version of being it's a It's not writer. even a way, really. No, well, yeah, I mean, for some people, but not yeah. for, the, for the, that's the minority. And so, you, you know, so I did this project on this. So the way it started was I fundraised for a project and I basically employed myself. Um, so I employed another writer as well to sort of, who sort of acted as a bit of a mentor. 
to me, so I'd done this residency, yeah, so I'd, I'd raised the money, I'd set up the project, I delivered it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then off the back of that, I was asked to apply for this writer residence at Central Line, mm-hmm. which was really high profile, very well paid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was on, what's the programme, Midweek on Radio 4, I had Brilliant. stuff in the Times, you know, stuff that I wouldn't have as a novelist. So, you know, in that thing of finding that there are ways to be read that aren't just novels and actually doing work that's all the time developing my own writing, but... Mm-hmm in very different ways in a very different context and then meeting a huge amount of different people and being yeah. in different places and so I've done yeah so I kind of somehow I mean I sometimes I think well I'm just going to do this for as long as it works and then I'll go and work in Tesco's or something yeah um but I think there's that thing that work breeds work I'm quite good at networking I'm quite good at um promote it's funny I'm terrible at promoting my books I'm really mm. but people go well, what do you write about I'm like oh I don't really know it's, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it's all right yeah. um but in terms <clears> of projects that aren't always that you know I mean they might be kind of driven by me but they're not about me I find I'm quite good at kind of talking about that and being excited about it and I think the more you do the more you people know you and then you become known for this kind of person who does this weird stuff around writing in place and then you get mm-hmm. approached for stuff um so yes yeah, so I kind of built up a portfolio of work and a portfolio of, net, of contacts and you know and get these amazing jobs so I've just recently got been commissioned by the University of Manchester to write some fiction about devolution in Manchester. Oh, um, God. No, I know, but I'd had so much fun. I wrote comedy. Did you? I never write comedy. Really? I, I'll, I'll send them to you when they're done. I can't say too much about it because, A, I work at the university, <laughs> okay. and B, you've just written something about it. So <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure um, devolution is great. No, but that was really... because. But for me, the thing I found interesting is taking a job like that, which is on the face of it like how on earth do you do that yeah. it's not particularly interesting it's quite abstract it doesn't have really very yet. political yeah yeah and, and it's actually, all about money it's just money 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 yeah isn't yeah, yeah. It? but I, but anyway but i find that interesting of kind of taking a job and going and talking to people and finding sure. that and finding a way to to make that work for me as well yeah um so yeah so then i did that for however many years and then i got this publishing before thing. you do that no, go on, okay sorry. how did you make it interesting the devolution yeah Manchester. do you know what i did what did you <laughs> I'm do i'm so excited about it um so, because um, I was feeling a little bit desperate, so I was just meeting various <laughs> academics and stuff, and at the end of our conversations, I'd always say, oh, if Devolution Manchester was an animal, what would it be? And I got some really amazing answers, like some answers that were that were funny and actually quite astute. Rhinoceros. And so, so my favourite, my absolute favourite, was this one who said, oh, it's like a mini pig, because you buy it, because you think, because you just think it's a good idea, and then... It she just said, hangs around. No, she said, and then um, and then you realise that mini pigs don't actually exist, but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, that is That's genius. Brilliant. It's brilliant. That's brilliant. So I wrote, I've written these three very short stories where basically these animals turn up in Manchester. Okay. And it's kind of, so it's a sort of way of, so there's a whale, a baby giraffe and a mini pig. Um, and so one's a very positive view of what devolution man could look like. One's yeah. a very negative one, which is a mini pig. Yeah. And one's a sort of, you know, in between, which is the whale. Yeah. Um, so I've written these kind of, they're sort of kind of slightly bonkers um, wow. stories about, and the, and so the animal stands in for the potential of okay. devolution. Okay, so when did, so it's like, uh, and I was going to say animal farm because I'm <laughs> such a <laughs> cynic. <laughs> but I think, I don't know, I just quite enjoy I enjoy doing things that are difficult, obviously. Yeah, but I also definitely. Kind of <laughs> that's that's, that's I next level. Yeah, but I kind of, but I just find it exciting to kind of, and I think because my process is always about people and it's always yeah. about having conversations and exploring ideas with other people and then finding a way to talk about that. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. So, so that's basically how I earn my living. However, also, I was very lucky in that I, so I've been writing for 10 years. Yeah. I'd written 10 Things I've Learned About Love, which is my first book. Yeah. 
I couldn't get an agent for it for love and money um, and I took a teaching job actually in Cambridge for a month over the summer um, which was actually when the riots happened I was in Cambridge I was miles away yeah. but um, and a woman called Francesca Main who's now my editor at Picador she came and did an event for our students she was just moving from Simon and Schuster to Picador mm -hmm. and we went up we took her out for dinner after the event and I was sort of banging on I was just I think I was just bitching about not being able to find an agent fine and she said can I read your novel and I had a moment when I went that doesn't happen <laughs> that just doesn't yeah. happen so I was like yes you want so, um, so I sent her my novel and she sent me a re very generous email that basically said I think it's great I think you're great I don't think it's ready I think you need to think about X, Y, Z so I then spent six months rewriting it I got a free read from the, the literary consultancy oh um, wow which how'd you manage a, that because they have a free read <laughs> they have a free read program damn you're um, good <laughs> it's, just, it's just knowing what's kind of yeah like, I am quite good at getting money yeah I'm, I'm um, impressed so yeah so I had that kind of feedback and because I knew that I had one shot at sending it back to this woman mm -hmm. Um, so I and I actually restructured the entire novel and basically rewrote it and then I sent it to her and she gave me a two book deal um, so I didn't have an agent it was just um, and then within I think within two weeks they sold it in 14 countries mm -hmm. and I got a big advance in the state so the money in I think Picador gave me t it was 25,000 for a two book deal yeah um, oh, I love it I when people tell me numbers no, thank no. you thank you no but it's just interesting isn't it yes. and that's a sort of basic fairly like a decent mm -hmm. fairly bog standard advance or 10 grand is it yeah Sounds from what i understand right um but then they sold in the <laughs> they do with that chair <laughs> um so then they do it again then um and then they yeah and then they sold it in i think germany and italy for more than they sold it in england and so what happens is that so with the UK deal, my ed, my agent, I then got an agent. My yep. agent then takes a cut, and then for the foreign deals, Picador take a cut, and then yep. my agent take a cut, and then I get the rest of it. Did they, when they read um, your book, did they say this is a book that is an international book? I like, don't why know. Did, why I think they, they were quite that? surprised. I think so. Picador, but it sounds like sounds to me like they did that before they had any sales in the UK. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't published in the UK at this point. They don't need to. They published it. it in all the other places. Except. No, they sold it in those other places. Oh. So it was published later than so. So, so I they got, think okay. so. They basically they bought world rights. Usually, you right. would keep world. The agent would keep world rights, and the oh, publisher wouldn't. But because okay. I sold straight to the publisher, and I didn't have an agent at the time, and anyway, for various reasons, they they made an offer for world rights. Okay. And then they did brilliantly and sold it all over the shop. And yep. so I had this extraordinary. So from having ten years of slogging my guts out, going, I'm yep. never going to get published. I was getting phone calls going, Oh, we sold it in Brazil. We sold it in Italy. We sold it in Vietnam. Blah, blah, blah. And Brilliant. then and then in America they. Um, so it's, it's, it's funny, the thing, I didn't even know that you really could make money out of foreign sales. And I think it's relatively rare for a first book to sell in mm -hmm. lots of countries, although it obviously happens. Mm -hmm. um, and then they have, you know, they always talk about auctions. So sometimes, I think in some countries mm -hmm. it was auctions that so gets pushed up. And then in America, there was what's called a preempt, which is when a publisher really wants it. Um, so they say, right, I'll give you. I think, I can't remember what it was. It was quite, it was a lot of money. <laughs> put the deposit on my house, let's put it away. Brilliant. Um, and they say, right, we'll give you this money, you've got 24 hours to take it off, tell everyone else they can't have it kind of thing. Yep. So actually, I'd gone from earning nothing from writing to, to actually making quite a lot of money quite quickly. I mean, you don't get it all in your bank account yep. immediately. Of course not. So. Because they want a couple of books. Yeah, because so there's a whole process behind yeah. it. Um, so actually then, I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm making my living as a novelist. Brilliant. But I think the interesting thing is that, that that, that never quite feels safe because you don't I so at the minute I'm out of contract I'm you know I spent three years writing another novel mm -hmm. I don't know if they're gonna buy it yeah I suspect it won't 
it may or may not sell well internationally. I think as a debut, you, you're sort of, you're, you're you, a you could be anything, right? Yeah. Whereas once you're on your third, but you kind of are what you are. Yeah. Um, so they've already made their decisions about you. Yeah, and if you I think so. And it's like, oh, well, you, ha you know, you weren't the number one bestseller and you haven't been on Richard and Judy or whatever. Yeah. So, so I think it's kind of, it was great. Mm -hmm. um, and it helped me buy a house and that's lovely. Fantastic. Obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think it's an, I think I would struggle to necessarily make, you know, make the money just as a novelist, I think. But yeah. also I don't think I'd want to because I really enjoy the other stuff. I think really feeds my writing and feeds myself, mm -hmm. feeds my need to be around other people. I don't believe you. <laughs> people say that, don't they? They say, no, it's so true. I don't want novelists. I I've heard insane. this so many times. But okay, so say you made a, a, an absolute shit ton of money from your yeah. book and you could you could sit on your ass all day and do nothing. You wouldn't though, would no, you? I wouldn't. You want the money. <laughs> Come on. Of course. <laughs> the money came and you're not gonna go, nah. <laughs> But I think, but I genuinely, I think also I'm a, I would say, you know, I'm an extrovert, which means that being a novelist is a bit of a disaster, really. Mm -hmm. Because, if, and I have a time, so actually when, you know, so when I, put 10 things have been bought, I was writing before the fire, um, and I was largely just writing, and I really wasn't happy, because I don't like... Bored. Kind of, yeah, and also, was it bored? <laughs> Kind of, and just lonesome. Bit, yeah, kind of lonesome. And I think I, I really thrive off people, mm -hmm. and I really thrive off being in the world. And I feel as a novelist, I want to write about the world. I don't mm -hmm. want to write about writing, for instance. Yeah. Um. So I, so I do need it, and it does. And I know I, I can see how all of the sort of projects I've done and people I've met have fed into my novels. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. So it is important for me. I think. Mm. Cool. What are you writing now? So. <laughs> you mentioned um, it. <laughs> no, it's funny. I've just, I've just finished my eleventh draft today. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't know how many. How many draft, How be. many do you? I don't know. Okay. Just gazillions of them. Right. Um, but it, I've been writing it for three years, and it feels mm -hmm. like it actually feels like it is might be sort of what it might be. Right. <laughs> if that makes sense. But I mean, it, the um, fact that you're on your eleventh draft, it's, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah, yeah. So this no, is it. A, does, is a, it is. It is a story. Yes, it is. Whether you know it needs polishing or whatever, but yeah. So it's um, in terms of that whole thing of the relationship between the two different bits of my work. So this mm -hmm. novel is set in Elephant and Castle in South London, and mm -hmm. I've spent I suppose spent ten years doing various different projects in Elephant and Castle. I'm assuming um, Elephant Castle in the way it used to be, rather than because it, it now it's, it's okay now, isn't it? Well, it depends. What well, it, I think I don't like it as much as I did. Um, Fine. It's got a very interesting and fractious history in terms of its, re if its regeneration. So the novel is set in 2014, which is when the Haygate estate, which is the big social housing estate, was being knocked down. And the two main characters who were in their late 80s moved onto the Haygate when it was built and then moved, were, were moved off when it, they decided to demolish it. And, there's, it's n and again, it's that thing. It's a bit, maybe it feels a bit disingenuous to say it's about that in the same way that Before the Fire isn't really about the riots. Mm -hmm. So it isn't really about the Haygate being knocked down, it isn't really about the regeneration, but it's again, it's that context of this demolition of this place that were these sure. people's home, and, and there's a particular, I think, pretty criminal story in terms of how that whole um, process was managed mm -hmm. in terms of the Haygate estate and what was promised to residents and what actually happened. And Sure. You know the money that changed hands between various people and I just so anyway that's the context but the story is about these two this elderly couple there's this kind of there's a backstory from the 50s of the woman used to be a hostess in um, Soho and had a affair with an oh, American 
um, who left her a flat when he died. So there's this kind of so, it's, and the flat was sort of wanting again to talk about housing in London, about value, about um, yeah, how how home has become a commodity, I guess, in London, and what that actually means on a personal level. Mm. And then there's a, and then the third character is um, a, a student called Marinella from Romania. Um, and there's a sort of friendship develops between the elderly couple and this student, um, and it's yeah, it's again, it's you know, it's about the heart of the novel is about their relationship and about this, um, the kind of flat reemerges, so to speak, um, yeah. and how that's kind of negotiated between this elderly couple and their son and grandson and then this mm. Romanian student. So, oh, did you know that's, that's the most articulate I've ever been about my right. novel? <laughs> Because I think it's been, I've been swimming in the swamp of it for so long. Yeah. Um, and for me, I always think writing's quite like archaeology. Like, I just have to keep digging and digging and digging mm -hmm. and try and work out what on earth it is I'm doing and who on earth these people are. Yeah. Um, and it's Picking away a, at it. Yeah, and it's always a really nice point when you get to the place where you actually know who they are. Right. <laughs> and what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, yeah, yeah, so I'm kind of excited about it. In a minute. Any interest in it yet? Um, I don't... I, I haven't sent it to anyone. Um, I mean, I'm doing... It's interesting, I'm doing... What, 15 more drafts and then... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm doing a PhD at the minute in creative writing. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. We, and, the, and that's part of, um, you know, it's a practice-based practice, practice -based PhD, so the novel is part of the PhD. Um, so I've had this... Right, okay. Yeah, so, so basically I'll hand in an 80,000-word novel and a 20,000-word critical commentary. Are we talking about a full-time PhD? Yeah. Wow, okay. Um, and so obviously my supervisor has been reading it as I'm mm -hmm. going along. And then I'm, ho I'm hoping that it'll be finished by the end of the year mm. and I'll try and sell it. Is that another way to get... Like, is, this a, is, a, is this a PhD that you're getting paid to do, basically? Yeah, I got funding for brilliant. it. <laughs> so I heard a, there was a brilliant... Oh, you're a, a good person to know. <laughs> <laughs> there's a brilliant poet called Romy Smith who's doing a creative writer PhD at the minute in Liverpool. And she had this brilliant answer. Someone said, oh, why are you doing a PhD? Because they're paying me. She said, she said it's an intelligent response to austerity. And I was like, oh, that's good. I'm going to use that's, that. That's excellent. It's really good. Yeah. But it is an extraordinary gift because actually I get, you know, I've, I haven't had, I've been self-employed for nearly 12 years now. Mm -hmm. um, so to actually get, basically get a salary yeah. every month is incredible. And it's allowed me to, you know, to pull back a bit on some of the projects, to take, to only take stuff that's, that I really want to do and mm -hmm. that sort of feeds into the thematic stuff of my PhD. Um, sure. So yeah, I'm feeling very lucky. So I'm projects, feeling very lucky. At the yeah, that's just, it sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah. What projects have you taken? Are you take? Are you doing now then? Um, as well to complement the PhD. So I'm just trying to think. I've just been doing some work in Finsbury Park, which is. Sorry, I realise I'm 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 just like pulling in. No, it's I want good. All it's this all good. Um, I do some work in Finsbury Park with a photographer, and we're asking who makes Finsbury Park. So basically, meeting people. I'm getting them to take me for walks on Finsbury Park, and then I'm going to write something beautiful, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I is it bad? The only thing I know about Finsbury Park is the mosque. No, I, do you know what? I I didn't know Finsbury Park at all before right. I started. I love it. It's a very interesting bit of London mm. and interesting compared to. So Elephant and Castle has this particular story, you know, kind of massive, na massive housing estate knocked down, huge new development, lots of you know high rise, high rise mm -hmm. on a kind of slightly bonkers and quite inhuman scale. And Finsbury Park is on a much different scale. There's an incredibly diverse. Um, with no sort of particular, there's no, not sort of one particular ethnicity that, mm -hmm. that is any kind of bigger than any other. So it's got this lovely mix. Um, and everything's done, on, so there is redevelopment and there is gentrification, yeah. but it seems to be happening on a much smaller scale. It's quite, it's a very interesting place. Mm. So I'm a bit in love with this part. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm doing that, and then I'm doing a really lovely project in Openshaw in East Manchester. Okay. So I'm working with a charity called Just Life, who work with people in unsupported temporary accommodation. Um, so basically, pretty crappy B&Bs, um, so very poor housing, people with really complex needs, so a lot of kind of drug and alcohol addiction mm -hmm. issues, um, lots of mental health stuff. And I, I was approached actually by them, they asked me to write a novel about it. They a do novel? A, yeah. Gosh, so that's they, a big ask. Yeah. <laughs> so they... Um, they do a lot of lobbying, they do a lot of um, kind of policy development stuff and they they wanted to find ways to put this kind of subject on the agenda because it's, you know, rough sleeping's talked about a lot but this kind yeah. of homelessness isn't. Um, and at the time I was too busy and I felt a bit uncomfortable being commissioned to write a novel so I said no and then it sort of stayed with me for ages and so I applied for Arts Council funding in my way of getting money. Nice. Um, and I'm writing a novella um, so, base, so basically I'm hanging around in their drop-ins for you know regularly yeah um, and then I've got a notice board up in there um, so you've talked them down a little bit anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not a no it's a novella <laughs> I know but I just like a novella is such a funny it thing is, isn't and it it's, and I think it's totally psychological because in mm. my head <laughs> I'm like oh it's shorter so maybe yeah. it's easier but I think shorter is harder anyway a lot of people um, go on so I've got a notice board up in their offices where I'm sort of, so I'm making that kind of process of making the novel quite public, which is quite a challenge for me, um, because because it's working with, I'm not I'm not writing about specific people, but I'm taking people's experiences and the sure. things they're telling me. Um, so that's really exciting and feels very pertinent at the minute in terms of all the conversations I, around housing and, yeah. you know. It couldn't be more relevant. Who's listening, who's listened to in society and all mm -hmm. that jazz. So yeah, so that's the, that's the biggest project. And then I've just got some smaller scale kind of little commissions and stuff. Wow. <laughs> Keep myself off the street. I'm absolutely blown away. Okay. Um, I th think that's really all I need. Cool. And I think that's a great place to end. Thank so, you. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah. You're welcome. How good was that? I think, I know I've said this already in the intro, but that might be my favorite podcast so far. Uh, sorry again for the background noise, bloody useless millennials. Haha, <laughs> just kidding, Sarah. What was that guy doing with those cups? It sounded like he was bashing with a fucking hammer or something. As I mentioned before, podcasts are coming up with the excellent first novelist, Adele Stripe, with her fictional book about a real person, Andrea Dunbar. Helen McClory talks to me about her latest novel. Jen Ashworth, as I mentioned, Kate Feld with the Manchester Literature Festival, with our yearly Manchester Literature Festival chat. Um, that one will be next, by the way. She'll be in the intro, and then it'll be Helen McClory, and then Joanna Cavenna and John McGregor. Not bad, eh? Yeah, so read their books beforehand, Reservoir 13 and Come to the Edge. Is Come to the Edge her latest? God, I better look that up before I talk to her. That's the one I'm reading. Anyway, I know I promised the intro to this podcast was going to come from the Edinburgh Book Festival, but I decided to get drunk and just watch fringe shows instead. Sorry, I'm a big fat liar. Boo-hoo-hoo. That's it, suckers. Catch you on the flippity-flop. If you see me at the Manchester Lit Fest, say hi. Bye.